Let's take our Bibles, and this morning where I'm not going to do a Mother's Day message that's talking about moms, but I want to continue on a series that we've been talking about, and that is on end times. And the topic that I have, the event in the future that I've purposely left for Mother's Day is somewhat related in the sense that it's the marriage of the Lamb. And you obviously can see the parallels right away that we're talking about. This is a, an event in the future that really there's not a whole lot of scripture that talks about it. It's an event that's described in Revelation chapter 19 and only a few verses uh, talk about it. But there's other texts that allude to it. But I want to catch in Revelation 19, if you look at these verses that specifically talk about this future event, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousnesses of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are true sayings of God. In this context, it makes a whole lot of sense if we kind of set the scene. The previous chapter is all about mourning, uh, not, not the, the dawn, but rather the grieving. The chapter 19 is all about making merry as we blend these two chapters together. Uh, backing up into chapter 18, just in case you're unfamiliar with it so that you see the contrast that's going on. Chapter 18 is describing events in the future during that tribulation period, which is future to us, could start any time, and it begins a seven-year period, which we've talked about, the worst seven years in all of human history. At the end of that time period, Antichrist has gotten power. People are dying by the score. Antichrist is making everybody who, uh, who is there to worship him take the mark of the beast. Horrible, horrible time. And his city that he's ruling and reigning out of is a rebuilt Babylon. And it's his capital. It's the hub of all the wickedness. If you look at chapter 18, it describes it as being this city that's just absolutely flooded with all kinds of evil. Well, what's going on in chapter 18 is God is ready to come back in his second coming. Jesus is going to return. That's chapter 19, the second half. And what he does is he takes out Babylon. He destroys the city, the capital city, and he starts ending up, here comes my judgments that have all been culminating, but man, all of a sudden Babylon's going to get whammied. And the result of cha in chapter 18 is the people of the world, they are all of a sudden going to great mourning. They're all of a sudden uh, weeping, and I'm stuck here. Something froze on me, if you can address it, please. What the people go into this great mourning and grieving situation that, uh, that occurs to them, and the reason being is kind of like you and I, that what happened is when 9-11 struck a number of years ago, it affected all of us. Uh, who were alive at that time, and all of a sudden we can remember, and it kind of made a pause around the world, and people were, were boomed, you know, knocked down by it. Well, that's what he's talking about in this text, is there's great mourning, but if you look in chapter 18, verse 20, in heaven they are encouraged, let's celebrate, let's rejoice. And chapter 19 now picks up with that theme that there's going to be great rejoicing in heaven. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. He talks about this rejoicing is all of a sudden a great voice. Uh, the idea is literally loud voice. It's, it's, it's huge. And same concept comes from another text that we give you in chapter 7. Much people, or chapter 7 says, a great multitude. There's all of a sudden this sound of all these people rejoicing, and it sounds like Niagara Falls when you're right underneath it. It sounds like thundering when it's right above your, your uh, place of residence. And so there's this loud celebration. 
and what they do in this first six verses is four times they call out the phrase or the word Alleluia, Hallelujah, same identical thing. Just in which language you're going to pick it. And so this is the, one of the first times in scriptures you have Alleluia so compacted and rejoicing that's being done in heaven. And the people that are doing it, it's very interesting in those first six verses. He describes them that praising much people in heaven. He says it's including the 24 elders. Back in our studies that we've done in the past, we've mentioned this. In chapter 4 and 5, when he talks about the 24 elders, it's obvious that it's church, representatives of the church. And so we'll be there. We'll be celebrating. There's angels that celebrate, in particular, four of them who will encourage the hallelujahs, the hallelujahs, and that is those four who surround the throne of God and he mentions as well, verse 6, a great multitude. So it would include us, it would include the angels, it would include the people of the Old Testament who are in heaven now, those who during the tribulation died and went to heaven. So there's all this rejoicing that's taking place in heaven. And the question you and I have to ask is why? Why is there so much celebration at this moment that's going on? What are they exactly calling out hallelujah? There's four different items in particular mentioned in this, verse, in this passage. They are excited because God's salvation is about to finally be fully realized. This salvation plan that he has. Now, if you look at verse 1, it clearly says that God is the one who deserves to be praised. He alone is the one. And they talk about giving him glory and honor and power and salvation, giving him praise for that. Now, for you and I to fully understand what we mean by that, when he says that he, the salvation to the saints, you and I have to go back and just review just a concept of salvation as described in Scripture. There's um, three different aspects of salvation. And you have already been experiencing a couple of them if you're born again. The first salvation uh, phase is what many of us, most of us, and I'll wish and pray that it would be all of us, have gone through. It's when we got converted. When we repented of our sin, we asked Jesus Christ to give us eternal life. It was when we were born again. And that is spoken of as people being invited to come and to believe and to repent of their sin. Behold, this is the day of salvation for the unsaved, for somebody who has yet to call upon Christ as their Savior. That is the first phase that many of you again have already gone through and if not we'll give you that opportunity at the end of the service. The second part of salvation is the, the theological term is sanctification. It is that idea of you are now saved not just from the penalty of sin, you're no longer damned to hell but rather you're saved from the power of sin as it affects you. That all of a sudden you're able to overcome those besetting sins. You are putting off you are now putting on, and you're growing in grace, and it's a now experience. You're experiencing some of salvation that's taking place right now in your life, saving you, changing you, making you to become more conformed to Jesus Christ. Then there's the third aspect of salvation that is future. This is the glorification. This is what you've been predestinated to become, to be conformed completely to Jesus Christ. This part of salvation is being saved from the presence of sin. And the way that happens in the future is when we are resurrected, when we're raptured, and all of a sudden the presence of sin is no longer within us. Or when it ultimately happens is when sin is removed from the earth. 
And it's pictured here in Revelation 19 when God is going to come back, Jesus sets up his kingdom, and he gets rid of Antichrist, gets rid of the false prophet, gets rid of all those who have done evil, and all of a sudden the presence of sin is not like it had been. And eventually, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, it's going to be absolutely completed. And so they're getting that sense in Revelation 19 that is beginning to happen right now for those people in heaven as this passage unfolds. Salvation has come. Finally, finally, we're going to start to experience the absence of sin. It's not going to be around anymore. Earth is going to be changed. There's another reason they're giving hallelujahs in this passage. They mention it here in the text where it says that idea that Babylon has fallen and they talk about how God's going to take down Antichrist and finally we're going to experience God's justice. God's going to get rid of the evil and there's an excitement to this that we read about in Scripture that finally... It's all, ta- it's all going to be dissolved and taken care of and evil is going to get its up and comings. Now some people today in our modern American culture where you're supposed to just be filled with love and never challenge anything or never be opposed to anything, some would say and look at this passage and say, why are people in heaven celebrating when the earth is all of a sudden having so much problems and God kind of puts his foot down and stamps out this wicked city of Babylon? Well, understand something. The saints in heaven have already been praying since chapter 6, those who are martyred. God, when are you going to put an end to the evil? How long until you finally stop this and people are getting killed and the Christians are suffering? And he describes Babylon in these two verses, where in chapter 19, in verse 2 and 3, and he talks about her being a great whore who has been corrupting the entire earth with her immorality and that she has shed the blood of his servants. Think this through. That what's happening in heaven during this time is people are understanding that on earth wickedness is at, a, at its rampant peak. That during that seven years they have killed God's people, making war like never before. Persecution is at a peak. We read that they are attacking the Jewish nation. They're trying to do a worldwide holocaust that would make World War II holocaust look like a kindergarten situation. During this time period, there's blasphemy against God. During this time period, people are refusing to repent, even though they know that God is judging them. They call for the rocks and the hills to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of God, but they will not repent of their murderers, their murderings, their sorceries, their fornication, their thefts. And so this time period, there's wickedness that's rampant on the earth. And at this, right about this very time in that future history, God has sent two prophets. They've been preaching in Jerusalem for now 42 months, according to chapter 11. And they've been clearly from God. If anybody tried to take them out, fire came from their mouth. But right before Babylon is destroyed, they, the, they killed the two prophets that they know are from God. And when they kill the two prophets, what do the peoples do? They celebrate, they cheer, they start sharing gifts with one another that we got rid of the two prophets. That's how evil the world is going to become. You and I keep saying right now, it can't get any worse. You know, how could it have gotten so bad in the last, you know, 10 years, 5 years, 2 years? The world is going to get much worse. 
The evil will be running rampant. And it's going to be where people will openly return to worshiping devils, idols of gold, silver, and brass. They're worshiping Satan as a world religion. They're following Antichrist with his 666 and all those things. And they absolutely insist on continuing in their wickedness. And when Jesus finally comes in the second half of chapter 19, what do they do? The passage says they make war against Jesus. So it's such an evil time and so wicked that the saints in heaven, when they are aware that God is stamping out Babylon and ready to come down and put an end to it, there's going to be celebration because finally wickedness is going to be stopped. Finally, its evil uh, power is going to be broken. Finally, the evil will be done away with. Finally, blasphemy will stop. No more false religions. No more attacks by the demons who will be put in bondage. Evil philosophies will be done away with and there will be a new thought pattern that will permeate the entire earth. Holiness unto the Lord. And so in heaven there's an enthusiasm. There's an excitement. Because, as this text says, hallelujah, God's Son is about to come and set up His kingdom. They even make that comment. For the Lord God, and scholars have pointed out it's almost a future tense, is beginning to reign. For the first time, the Son of God is going to come down and take over the planet Earth as the ruler and reign. And this is the eve of that happening, hours or moments or minutes before, and people in heaven are excited. Evil is being done away with. Jesus is setting up his kingdom on earth. We're finally going to realize what God has prophesied and promised with complete salvation. The creation is going to be, uh, going to be assisted along from the curse. And it's going to be an amazing time. And we're excited for this to happen. But there's one more item. There's one more item that comes up in this chapter. It says, also rejoice. Look at chapter or 19, 7a. It says, because the marriage of the Lamb is about to take place. The marriage of the Lamb. What is that? What do we, what do we mean by that? <clears throat> What's interesting is just talking about the title and, tied, and dissecting it a little bit. Again, there's not a lot of scripture. So I think the best way for us to answer what is this marriage of the Lamb is start off with this point. Who are we talking about in this, in this idea of the marriage of the Lamb? And the apparent party, the one who is predominant is the Lamb. It doesn't say marriage of the Lord. It's to identifying somebody that the readers in heaven, they know already has been described as a lamb. Somebody that is the lamb that everybody in heaven is aware of as the lamb. When you think about lamb, you're going to think about humility. You're going to think about sacrifice. And so you go, okay, there's a marriage taking place and one of the parties involved is somebody who's outstanding in his humility and in his sacrifice for his person that he's concerned about, or peoples he's concerned about. Well, you and I obviously know who he's talking about. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. So who is he talking about in this text? It's the marriage of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is all of a sudden going to wed himself to somebody. And that's no surprise that Jesus is called, of his many titles, he is called the groom. Jesus himself referred to himself as a groom one day. 
In the passages that we've listed here, it is a time when Jesus is preaching and teaching. And the Pharisees come up to him and they criticize Jesus because they compare him to John the Baptist. When John the Baptist was ministering just weeks, months before this, John was dressed in really rough clothing. John is eating grasshoppers, you know, really great food. He's, he's leaving this really, you know, this, this really... Um, you know, what word do I want to use that keeps a, you know, just a Spartan lifestyle. And he's fasting and he's living in the wilderness. But Jesus and his disciples, they're going to weddings. They're having feasts with sinners as they're accused of. And so the Pharisees come and they go, why is this? Why are you and your disciples, why aren't they doing what John did? Why aren't they fasting and why aren't they all of a sudden, you know, holding back on things? And Jesus answers. And he uses a wedding idea. He uses this phrase where he says, can you make the children or the wedding of the bride chamber, the wedding party, can you make them fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is, uh-uh. When the bridegroom, when the groom is around, it's time for celebration. You know, the, the, everything is going on. It's great. And then Jesus goes on after he has clearly asked the way the original reads, the answer is no. Okay, while the groom is there, you're having a, a good time. But then he goes on, he says that the days will come when, he's referring to himself, the groom shall be taken away from them, his disciples, and then they shall fast in those days. And so Jesus makes it clear, I'm a groom, and, why, and I'm going to get married someday. He's not the only one that alluded to it. When John the Baptist was ministering, there was a time when all of a sudden John the Baptist is approached by some of his disciples and they say, hey John, all of, all of the crowds that listen to us, they're going after that Jesus dude. You know, why is that? Aren't you upset? And he responds, you bear me witness. I am not the Christ. I've been saying this all along. I'm not the Christ. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the best man of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because the bridegroom. He calls his bride. And so he says, that's me. This is my joy. He must increase. I must decrease because I'm not the groom. He is. I'm just merely the best man. Paul writes about this. Paul makes comment in his epistle to the Corinthians. He says, I have, when I introduced you to Christ, I betrothed you. I got you engaged to one husband spiritually and that I may then present you as a pure, devoted, loyal bride to Jesus Christ. Well, there's one passage that makes it so abundantly clear. Ephesians chapter 5. If you have any doubt whatsoever about who the bride and who the groom is, flip over to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, please, where he talks about this idea of brides and grooms and makes it very clear the, what, what the Scriptures is teaching about Jesus and who he's going to one day, quote-unquote, marry. Jump down into Ephesians chapter 5 and follow along as I read, please. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Jesus loved who? The church and gave himself for it. 
Why? That he might one day, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, and that he might one day present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. In the same way, or so ought men to love their wives even as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes his own flesh, even as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. For we are members of his body, his flesh, his bones. Now reverting back to earthly relations. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they, shall too, they too shall become one flesh. Now switching to the illustration, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, switching back now to the earthly relationships, let every one of you in particular so love his wife and wife reverence her husband. It's very clear in this text. Very clear. Jesus is the groom. The church is his bride. Jesus will one day enter into a really unique union with the church where they can live together and be together and she enjoy his great favor and be elevated in a very special, unique way and never be physically parted from Jesus Christ. Now, the text obviously provides tremendous, challenging examples to how husbands are to treat their wives, sacrificially love their wives, provide for their wives, care for their wives, sanctify their wives, help their wives to grow spiritually, work at their wife becoming everything she should be so that when she's presented before God, she is rewarded. They're supposed to be helping, not competing against their wife, not downplaying their wife, but rather elevating their wife the way Christ loved the church, which is a tremendous challenge week in and week out for you men, us who are married, to say, are we actually living out, loving our wives the way Christ loves me? Forgiving, patient, tolerant, encouraging, uplifting, upbuilding. But the bigger message in this text that he's talking about is that idea that Jesus will one day unite with us in a relationship that is even bigger and better than what we have with him right now. That there will be a real, real physical contact that we will live with him and that he will be with us and we won't be apart for any length of time. And it will be an eternal union where we are elevated as his bride just as Israel is the elevated nation. We are the elevated individual with Christ. And so we look at that and go, wow, that's, that's a phenomenal spot, uh, idea. So now we jump to Revelation 19 and in Revelation 19 he's building up and saying, okay, here it is. This is the wedding time. This is the wedding moment. And that's what's explained in Revelation 19 which has been already pictured in previous passages. For us to understand it fully, we have to understand exactly how did they do weddings back in Bible days, in Jesus' day. Weddings do change from country to country, yes? Hello? Okay. Do weddings change over a period of time? Do weddings change under COVID? Right? There's, there's, there's lots of different changes. Well, since the Bible was written and it was written from a Jewish mindset, I have to understand when he's talking about weddings and grooms and stuff, how did the Jews do their weddings? 
you know, were they like what we do today? Okay, you know, do they, they didn't use preachers. They didn't go to the church and do it there. How did they do their weddings? Well, actually, there was different phases of their weddings. There was different steps in it. They would start with what's the proposal. And this was actually considered the, the time that you sign the marriage license. This was the legal moment you're married, okay, to a degree. And so in their culture, it could be done by you parents making the arrangements. Now, wouldn't you have rejoiced in the fact if your parents were to pick out your bride? Men, that was so smart. There was just pure silence. Wow, you just, you just, you got points on that one. Okay. Because we in our culture, we don't like this idea. But back in the Bible culture, there was a possibility that the Jewish parents could make the arrangement for you. Just, just to put it in perspective, Jewish writings from the time of Christ, it was very clear that the rabbis made it part of the rules about weddings is parents could not force their daughter to marry somebody that she did not want to marry. And so there was a provision there of protection. But in a lot of the ancient world, there was parents making the arrangements. Now, Jews also allowed this. They allowed the groom, at times, the interested party, that if somebody caught his eye, he could say, okay, I want to initiate the proposal. And actually in their culture, you as the groom wouldn't do it. You would send your best man. And he would make the offer. He would make the presentation to the family. And then to make the next step to say, okay, I'm interested in your daughter, and here's what I'm willing to pay you for your daughter. Whatever that was. And so the payment, once it's made, it's formalized. You're married to a great degree. Now all of a sudden you are of the ilk that this part, once the agreement was, was done and the exchange was made, um, at that moment you're considered husband and wife. Mo- Joseph and Mary are called husband and wife, but they have never yet gone through the next phase. They're in the engagement stage, the proposal stage. And you don't live together okay, during this time period. You can't have sexual relations but you are committed to that individual and in order to break off the engagement you have to go through a divorce settlement. So that's the first stage. Okay? Then you have the second stage in Jewish culture was called preparation. This usually lasted about a year. And what would happen is the couple now, they want to, if their parents made the arrangements, this is their time to get to know one another. This is the time that they could have time together under strict rules of conduct, chaperoning, things like that. But it's time to get to know more about each other and to prepare yourself. The girl would prepare everything she needs for the wedding and for the marriage. The guy, he would prepare. And typically the way that the guys would prepare is they go and build the house where they're going to live, usually on parents' property, his parents' property, or attached to his parents' house. And so he would go to his father's house and prepare a place for his bride. Then you have, during this time period, they're building up their funds, their furniture, their, everything that they need for the day that comes when the wedding is, is, is set. And usually, like I say, there's a year uh, out from the, during that engagement. Then finally comes wedding day. And on wedding day, there's two aspects of this wedding day. And they typically would know the day, but they didn't know what time of the day. And so what happens here is the time for the wedding comes, the groom has been celebrating, 
and they're ready to do it. In the New Testament time when Jesus came, traditionally, typically, it was Tuesday. The reason they would do weddings on Tuesday is because it's the only day in creation week where twice God says, and God saw that it was good. And so they, they took that. That's the best day to get married. And so they're, you're, you're ready to get your bride, guys. So you get your wedding party together. You're going to parade through the town. Horns are blowing. I don't know if they're pulling tin cans. But they're all of a sudden, here you go. You show up at the bride's house. She's been waiting for you, and she's ready. She's not going to make you wait. Y'all... Not the way that it works back then. She's been ready from early in the day, and she's got all her, her friends with her, and now you all gather together, and you parade back to, guys, you take her back to your parents' house, you know, the, the, the guy's parents' place. And there, they, when they get back, they have the blessing of the parents, and they exchange their vow. Then starts the big phase the public phase, the party time, or the marriage feast, the marriage supper. This is when all of a sudden it's the public celebration. It could be that same day, typically was, and what would typically happen, it would last for a day, two days, three days, or up to a week, depending upon how many people you're inviting to the celebration, how much money you have. And so this is all that celebration taking place that your wedding feast, your wedding reception is going to last for several days. Fun. Great. You know what's really interesting is now compare this to what Jesus has done for you. Watch the beautiful analogy that Scripture has set up. There was a time when there was a proposition made by the best man who did we already say is Jesus' best man? John the Baptist made the public declaration, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And he kept on saying, Jesus is here. He's coming. So John presents Jesus. And then Jesus makes the payment. Jesus dies on the cross. Sufficient to satisfy all that the bride needs in order to be able to become his. Total forgiveness. Provisions beyond that. Then what happens is, after the proposal has been presented, all of a sudden, Jesus leaves to do preparation. What do we read in scriptures? I go to prepare a place for you. That's where we live right now. Jesus is preparing a place for us, and one day he's coming again in that presentation. He will come and receive us to himself and take us back to his father's home. That could be any moment. What Matthew, I'm sorry, what Revelation 19 is talking about is the public phase. To look at verse 9 to whom people are invited. The public now is invited to the celebration. In fact, if you look at verse 7 and you look at verse 9, it says, Behold the marriage of the Lamb. Verse 9 talks about the marriage supper. It's the same words in the original. And so he's talking about what we're, what we're doing in Revelation 19 is he's got us in heaven. The vows have been complete. Now the celebration begins. 
This is part of the completion of the Jewish marriage process. And there's people who are going to be invited to it. Now, some scholars think that God's wedding feast is going to last all 1,000 years. That all of a sudden, this is when Jesus will now drink with us in the kingdom. That he said he would never drink again until the kingdom. And so, verse 9 talks about people who are invited to it. Well, who's the ones who aren't marrying him, but they're invited? Who are the wedding guests? It's going to be the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints, those who have lived through and survived the uh, tribulation, and they've been part of the sheep goat judgment, and they are believers, and they're going to be there witnessing the party, the celebration, the great marriage supper that we have as Jesus Christ exalts us if that's the right word to use. He lifts us up and says, this is my chosen. This is the ones that I am fully committed to. Just as I was committed to Israel as a nation, I am committed to these people who are going to live with me and rule and reign and share with me in my kingdom and have a unique, intimate type of contact relationship with Jesus Christ. Phenomenal. Amazing. And so we look at that and go, okay, what else is in this text? There's a couple things mentioned about the bride that I want you to catch. About you, if you're, if you're a, a born-again person. It's mentioned in this text that she has already made herself ready. So this is one of those texts that some people say, well, yo, where the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation. Ah, the bride's already been in heaven. She's already been made ready. Jesus has already presented her, him, the bride to himself, spotless, etc., etc., that Ephesians 5 talks about. So we're already been in heaven for a while, and we've been made ready for this moment. And in making ready, and by the way, it says made herself ready, not being made ready by somebody else, made herself ready. How did that happen? How did we get ready? There's two things that are mentioned in this, in this passage. Attire and activities. Notice the clothing, the attire. She has made herself ready because she has put on the fine linen. And he talks about this. And by the way, it says in the text, talking about the clothing that, that was given to the bride, it says in verse 8 that to her was granted or to her was given at Othe. Something she didn't make herself. She didn't do her own gown. She didn't go out and buy this. This was given to her, and you and I can make the assumption, who gave this beautiful garment to her when we step back and realize throughout Scripture, oftentimes, clothing in the spiritual realm is picture of your spiritual standing. Isaiah, all of our, uh, our righteousnesses that we think are good, they are as what? Filthy rags. Okay? And so frequently there's the picture of when people are standing in heaven. In Zechariah, when Joshua is standing before God and his, his clothing is spotted and soiled, picture of sin. But all of a sudden God removes that and gives him a new set of clothing. Well, in Revelation 19, a new set of clothing is given to the bride from the groom. This fine clothing is something very expensive, something beautiful. This fine clothing is radiant. The word clean has the idea of that it's, it's actually glistening. It's, uh, it's similar to the angel's robes that are glistening and radiant. 
And so there's going to be this brilliance that's going to be surrounding. He talks about it's being white, literally being clean, being pure, being spotless. This is talking about the idea that your sins are all removed so that when the Father looks at you, he no longer sees our sins, but he sees us clothed in, I'm going to use the word righteousness, cleanness, purity, not from something we've done and made of ourselves, but righteousness is actually the work of Jesus Christ. And so granted to the bride is this spiritual purity and attractiveness that, that draws Christ's glance at you, that gets God's approval. And so Christ gives us his righteousness, his garments, if you would. And it's a phenomenal idea. You jump to the book of Isaiah, and in Isaiah he's talking about the same time period, right by this kingdom we're about to enter into as the bride of Christ. And Isaiah says, my joy, my rejoicing is great. I'm so excited. And then he gives an idea about how excited he is. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with robe of righteousness, just like the bridegroom decks himself and then the bride adorns herself so she looks wonderful. Do you realize that during the part of the New Testament culture, some, several historians point out that during the time of Christ, what they would do in that part of that public ceremony right at that moment when the vows are exchanged and it's I take you, you take me type thing, the groom would take off his own robe and he would put it around the bride. Even though she had a beautiful garment on, he would put his own robe about her so that it was clear who does she belong to? Him. It was clear that he's covering her. So this robe that we're talking about, this attire, is the cleansing that Jesus gives, the righteousness. But then he goes on, he says, there's something that you have to be involved in for this to happen. And it's, that's why I call it your activities. Even though the attire is granted to you, if you look at the text, it says, you have made yourself ready. You have had to take this robe. You have had to receive this. There has to be some time in your life where you, just like a bride and groom says, I take you to be my... You have to have some moment in your life history. Even though you're in love and you've gotten engaged and you're planning this wedding that seems like all eternity before you get to it. You're not married until one moment where you say, I take you. Is there a moment where you have said to Jesus, I take you to be my Savior? Not the Savior of everybody else. I take you to be mine. My one and only Savior. I, I, I want you to cleanse me, forgive me, give me eternal life. So she's made herself ready in the past. But then he says also the fine linen is the righteousnesses, literally in the original, plural, of the saints. I understand, and you know this, righteousness is a product of grace. Holy, holiness is what God gives. But it also, oops, I want to get back to that. It also is involving your practice of godly living. You are required by Scripture to put off and to put on. You are required in Scripture to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. 
You are required in Scripture that he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying you go out and you find out how to get saved. He's talking to believers who already have salvation, and he's saying, you bring it out in your life. You start acting like Christ. You start putting off the temper and putting off patience. You start putting off lying and putting on honesty. You all of a sudden start putting off evil uh, communication that corrupts. And you show forgiveness and get rid of the bitter words. You're required. Even though God has everything here, you're required to take and apply it to your life. And he's saying the bride. The bride is going to come to a point where she has presented herself, she's cleansed, and as a result, she's been rewarded. She's been given the jewels, the, the crowns, and there she is now. It's all completed. She has, she has the righteousness God gave. She has shown her godly conduct. And, there she, and, and the question is, do you have godly conduct to show? You, are you going to give any participation to this godly rewards, the, the godly activities that he says enamors people in the future. What will you have contributed in the way that you are living for Christ? Well, John sees all this, and John is like, whoa, this is amazing. This is, is it really happening? Is evil finally being done? Is the marriage taking place? And the angel says to him, it is a true saying. This is actually going to happen. And John is so caught up at this moment and so excited because, remember, John's part of us. He's part of the church. He realizes that, hey, I'm going to be a part of this this community that is going to be elevated and going to be so close to Christ for, for the millennium. And he's so excited, he falls down to the angel and starts worshiping and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And the angel says, stop. See it in verse 10? The angel says, stop worshiping. I'm just like you. I'm a servant. And then the angel makes a comment. And the comment is, the the angel stops him and says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does the angel mean by that? That all this prophecy isn't about the bride. All this prophecy isn't about the garment. I mean, when we think weddings, what are we enamored with? Yeah, we're, we're enamored with the bride, we're enamored with the meal, we're enamored with it being short, we're all about what the gift's going to be, all that kind of stuff. And he says, wait, the menu isn't what's important, it's the master. It's the one that we're supposed to be focusing on. And you know how it is today. I'm, when I do the premarital counseling, I'll say to the couples, okay, the guy and girl sitting across my desk, I say, okay, this, in American culture, you know, this is one of the major mistakes you can make in weddings, is in American culture, what do they say? Whose day is it? It's the bride's day. And what a terrible way to approach it. That it's all about you. I mean, how selfish is that? You know, this isn't, you know, I know it's your day, and then we joke a little bit about it. And then I say, guy... You know, fiancé, this is your job. This is your one job that you have to do for the wedding. Show up. You know, that, that's, that's your job. You got to be there. You got to show up. So I'm not talking to you for all this wedding preparation unless she looks at you. you know. Well, that's our culture. And the angel is saying that's not, that's not heaven's culture. Kevin's culture doesn't care that much. Tongue in cheek. Doesn't care that much about the bride. Heaven's culture is, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. He's the, supposed to be the focus. He's the one that's supposed to be the one that, that we're enamored by. 
And so when you put this whole, this whole tidbit, limited amount of information together, what do we do with it? Well, can I make just some closing comments that are very, very important? Here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. If you have never yet been born again, you've got to receive God's proposal. God wants to give you eternal life. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to enter into a one and only with Him. Let Him be your one and only Savior. And He's made that proposal from Calvary. I mean, seriously, folk, there are some phenomenal proposals that people do. I shared with you on a series about five years ago uh, in the Sunday evenings some proposals that caught the interest of journalists that were done here in America that they thought were really cool, they were really neat, like this one. There was this guy who was so shy, he didn't quite know what to say to the girl at the moment that he was going to propose. He got all tongue-tied after he pulled out the ring box. He just froze. He tossed the box to the girl and began to run away. She caught the box, saw what was inside, chased him down and said yes. Okay, <laughs> that's unusual. Okay. One lawyer made a deal with several policemen who were his friends. They arrested his girlfriend on totally bogus charges. They worked out the plan to stop her car, arrest her, drive her to the city jail. Once incarcerated, they informed her that she could only make one phone call. So naturally, she calls her, her no, no. She doesn't call mom. Okay. Her lawyer boyfriend. This lawyer was the boyfriend. She called her lawyer boyfriend who shows up. He comes down, was taken to her cell, where he told her, the only way that they will let you go is if you agree to marry me. I'm, I'm sorry. That would just... If I were that gal, I... Boom, I mean, just, just... Just no way. I mean, just how... how I, I, would you trust the guy for what he's going to do? Yeah. Here's one. Here's one for you. Another young man... He thinks this is clever. Another young man pretended to have died. He planned the entire visitation at the funeral home with his buddies who worked there. He was laid out in his best suit. His girlfriend comes in, sobbing, comes, is brought up to the casket, and he suddenly sat up, asked her to marry him. Okay, I'm not a gal. If you had done that to my daughter, you would have stayed in that casket for good. <laughs> right? Ladies, wouldn't you want to put him out? Oh, my lands. After she finally stopped screaming, she slapped him and said yes. She needs counseling. Oh, I are. One guy lived in a different state from his girlfriend and surprised her with a plane ticket to visit him. When she arrived at the airport, a limo was waiting for her. The music was playing over the car system, and the music was actually a compilation of their favorite songs. <laughs> she was taken to a high-end store where a rack of dresses and boxes of shoes were waiting for her, personally handpicked by the guy. She chose her favorites, was then driven to a salon for a three-hour treatment, massage, manicure, pedicure, hairstyling, makeup. Following that pampering pit stop, she was taken to a resort hotel. 
transferred to a horse-drawn carriage and driven around a small lake to the entrance where more than 100 candles lit the red carpet path. Violinists began to play a song this guy had actually personally composed. And as she walked the red carpet, he appeared at the top of the stairs and began to sing to her. When she stood at the top step, he dropped to one knee. I can't do it. I won't get up. He dropped to one knee, and a huge board behind him lit up with the words, Will you marry me? Before she could answer, he stood to his feet, sang the finale to his original love song, backed up by a 45-piece hired orchestra. When she finally said yes, fireworks exploded in the sky above. He makes me sick. <laughs> he ought to turn in his man card. I tell you, just... <laughs> phenomenal, you know, things that, they, that people do. But can I tell you, in all seriousness the greatest proposal you will ever have heard. I died for you, Jesus said. I gave my life for you. I suffered hell for you. Then I rose again and ascended up into heaven. And if you ask me to forgive you of your sins, whosoever shall call upon me shall be saved. Nobody can beat that proposal. Nobody. And my question to you is, what are you going to do with that? If you have never yet asked Jesus Christ to be your one and only Savior, to give you forgiveness and eternal life, you need to do that. In fact, we're going to, in a few moments, we're going to give you that opportunity. Our staff is going to be over by that door. In fact, in the next couple of minutes while I'm talking, as, as the staff available, head over there right now. If you want, go and ask them to have somebody show you from the Bible. They will show you from the Bible in private what you need to do to accept Christ as your Savior. But while you're pondering that, thinking about that, feel free as I continue talking to just step over there or go around the side, the back of the door and head over that way. Let me, let me add something else you should do. Number two, you should do this. You should rejoice. Those of you who have been born again, you ask Christ, you should rejoice in God's husbandly love towards you. Think about it. If you've accepted Christ, he is treating you like his one and only. That means that like the Jews of old, when, he, when you accept his proposal, it is a permanent commitment on his part to you. He doesn't reject you. He'll never get rid of you. It is the idea that he will care and provide for you in this life even. He's coming back for you. We know that. He's not going to leave you here but he said, I'll take care of you. I'm providing. I, I'm, I'm doing all the provisions that you need. It's, it's amazing. And when he comes and takes you to heaven, he will complete you. You see, husbands and wives aren't supposed to compete. They're supposed to complete. And Jesus Christ says, I will complete you. That is worth rejoicing. To have somebody that committed to you. Somebody that thinks you are that valuable. I shared this story on New Year's a few years back about a gentleman by the name of Bob who was out garage sailing. And as he was out garage sailing, he came to this one house where an older couple was selling everything because they were going to have to leave their house and move into some senior facilities. And he was looking through their garage and checking things out, and he came to this one spot over in the corner where there was something covered up with a blanket that didn't have a price tag or anything. And he thought, oh, that looks like a motorcycle. So he picked up the blanket and he looked. Sure enough, it was a motorcycle, an old beat-up thing, a Harley-Davidson. 
And there it was, and it was in bad, bad shape. So he went back to the guy who was sitting out in the driveway and said, hey, I saw that motorcycle in there. You want to get rid of it? Well, my wife says I got to get rid of everything, though I don't want to. But I guess I got to get rid of it. Well, what do you want for it? Well, I don't know. I bought it years ago. I was going to fix it up. The engine is seized up, and I never got around to it. It doesn't run at all. But, uh, you know, I guess I could get it scrap metal, maybe 35 bucks. Why don't you give me 35 bucks? And so Bob gave him 35 bucks, loaded up the bike, took it home, had to convince his wife it was a good deal. That took a couple days. And, uh, and then several days went by. He kind of got preoccupied doing his stuff. And you know how men just rare, very rarely buy stuff that they just leave set. He let it set for a few days. And then he thought, hey, I should check this out. I wonder what it would cost to start doing some rebuilding. He knew that if he called the parts place at the Harley-Davidson, he would have to have a serial number to get the right year and all that. So he got the serial number off, calls up the parts place at the local Harley-Davidson, gets the parts manager, and he's talking to him and saying what he's got. And the guy says, well, I would need your serial number so I can start. Yeah, yeah, I got that. And he said, well, let me now that I have a serial number. I can check out a little bit more on its record and give you an idea of the right stuff that you'll need and uh, give you just just a real quick estimate. It'll just take me a few minutes if you give me now some time. So he's on hold listening to the music and just sitting there for a few minutes and all of a sudden the parts guy comes back and his demeanor, his tone is totally changed. Just says, sir, um, I need you to give me your name, your number, uh, your name, number, address, and I'll have to get back to you sometime in the future. I, I, I just, just please give it. And Bob says, okay, here's my name, number, da-da-da-da-da-da. And he hung up and he's thinking about it that guy got really weird on the phone. I wonder if the bike was stolen. Oh, or it was involved in some criminal activity and the police are probably on my way. Why did I give him, a, give him my home number and everything? And, you know, what am I, I'm going to end up in jail. Well, he doesn't end up in jail. Police don't show up. But a few days later, he gets a call from a guy who identifies himself as a major executive from Harley-Davidson headquarters. And he says, you know, hi, hi, real bubbly guy. And Bob's kind of like, who is this guy? What's he want? And kind of questioning. And the conversation goes on, and, and the man says, I have a favor, Bob. Oh, buddy, would you do this something? I need you to check something on the bike. If you just put the phone down, go back into your garage, and unscrew the seat. And I want you to check if there's anything written on the metal underneath the seat. Okay. So Bob goes, gets his tools, takes off the seat, and it's all greasy, dirty, rubs off, and he sees a few letters. And he comes back, picks up the phone, and he says, hey, um, the few letters I found, K-I-N-G. And the guy's silent. You still there? Bob, I have been authorized by our company to offer you $300,000 for that bike as is. What? Those, those word, that word, along with the serial number, confirms that you have one of the Harley Davidsons that Elvis Presley owned. And so I'll give you $300,000 today. I'll have to think about that. Two days later, he gets a call from Jay Leno who offers him $500,000. What made the bike so valuable? It's still ugly. It's still broken down. The tires are bad. It still needs a lot of work. But it's because it was owned and touched by the king. 
What makes you so valuable? When you feel broken down, flat, rusty, you belong to the king. You have value. You are precious in the sight of God. You are somebody that he is coming back for. He is committed to. He is going to unite with you and invite you to live with him forever and ever and ever. You are valuable to Jesus Christ. You should rejoice in that this day. My lands, I'm not pretty, I'm not rich, I'm not talented, but I belong to the king. I belong to Jesus Christ. Wrap up with these two final thoughts. Ready yourself for that union. Just as the bride has made herself ready, you need, during this time of preparation, you need to get to know more about Jesus. You need to make sure that you have the furnishings you're going to take with you, that you have invested into that which Jesus is wanting you to bring with him, that you would bring others with you, that you would bring holiness and righteousness and godly living in. And then you should have this in your mind. You should be revering Christ. It's not about us. It's not that we're important. It's not that we're precious. It's about Jesus Christ. That he would love us. That he would give us a home in heaven. That he would unite with us. That he calls us the apple of his eye. How dare we even think of being disloyal to this one. Bringing shame to his name embarrassing him in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) The marriage of the Lamb. It's all about the Lamb, but I'm sure glad I've been invited to be a part of that marriage. You are too. If you have yet to say yes, go and talk to those people right now as we pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to know that you've given us this offer to be with you forever. Thank you for the promise, the commitment that you have made to us, even though we didn't deserve it. Thank you for the forgiveness that you extend to us, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you for the hope that you've given us. Thank you for the assurance that some here need right now that you value them. You're coming back for them. That they are important to you. No matter how we look, how broken down we are, thank you that you have engraven upon our hearts, your name, that we belong to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love, your compassion. Help us to remain loyal to you. Help us to love you more because you first loved us. We love you. Thank you. Amen.